Welcome to Premium Cashflow Real Estate Investing Podcast with Sakar Kali. During this program, you will hear guest experts sharing their experiences, best practices, and market insights. We discuss investing in multifamily apartment complexes and how a busy professional can passively invest hassle-free in various opportunities. Your host, Sakar Kali, owns millions of dollars of assets and has done thousands of value-add projects over 20 years now. So listen in for insights. Here's your host, Sakar Kali. Welcome to another edition of Premium Cashflow Podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of hosting Lynn Kawaka. Lynn is from Honolulu, Hawaii, and he has a massive uh, following at simplepassivecashflow.com. He's a civil engineer by education and went through the normal route of, uh, you know, doing a professional work and doing some uh, single family rentals and eventually got into uh, multifamily syndications, earning passive cash flow. Uh, he currently controls well over 3,500 doors and has his assets in several states from Alabama, Georgia, Indiana, Oklahoma, uh, Los Angeles, Texas, Missouri. Wow. I mean, this list goes on and on. So I appreciate your time, Lane. Uh, you want to give some background to, to our listeners as to how you got started and how you came about into multifamily nowadays? Yeah, so I, I started, um, graduated college, always was told to go to school, get a good job, just like a lot of us, a um, bunch of lies, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I became an engineer and started to work for a couple years and still following that whole financial dogma of buying a primary residence to live in. Um, I was there in this big house but because I was traveling all the time for work, you know, away sure. mm-hmm. Sunday through Friday. It, really, it was kind of silly for me to have this big house to live in by myself. So I just started to rent it out, got an old um, college landlord to help me um, property manage it. And um, the, the rents were 2200 a month and the PITI, the, the mortgage payments were 1600 a month. And sure. the young 20 year old something kid, that was a lot of beer money. Right. And right, right. Um, I didn't really like my job. Mm-hmm. Um, mostly the people, mm-hmm. people was the issue. But I saw that was my way out of the rat race. And, and awesome, awesome. And it's that. fair to say you got that early taste of what a simple cash flow is like. And once you kind of get the bug, you kind of see the power that, hey, can I multiply this cash flow to different, you know, many units more? Yeah. Would that be right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I lived in Seattle at the time. So that property was $350,000. So if you do the math, 2200 divided by... Their 350,000, it was well below the 1% rent to value ratio. Sure. So I didn't know anything about the 50% rule, 1% rule, all, all those things that, right. you know, it's kind of talked about a lot, but right. you know, it worked and that was kind of where I got that taste. Like you said, that's awesome. That's awesome. And help us understand like how you scaled your business in terms of, you know, how you came into multifamily syndications and things like that. Yeah, so it took a while, right? Because, I mean, my net worth was like zero. I didn't have too many student debts, which I was lucky. Sure. Mm -hmm. So I bought the first property and then I bought a duplex in Seattle, went down more more towards like the B plus B range spectrum. Mm -hmm. That first property was an A class. And then I started to, um, you know, 
get more sophisticated in terms of you know understanding you know you you don't really want to buy in a primary market like Seattle or California or Hawaii. Sure. You're mm-hmm. looking for more secondary and tertiary markets. So that mm-hmm. was where I started to buy a bunch of turnkey rentals in Birmingham, Atlanta, and Indianapolis. And mm-hmm. I got up my portfolio up to 11 rentals, I think five or six years later. So it, you know, it takes a while sure. just buying. Because at the time, I was able to save thirty to 50000 a year, I'd say, from my day job. Right, right. So that was really the key. I mean, just putting that much money away, just buying properties and those properties appreciate a little bit. Um, that was where I got up to a point of 11 rentals in 2015. Sure, sure. And you, you touched upon several important things there, Elaine. Uh, could you help us understand our listeners in terms of, you know, how different markets play, you know, like some are appreciating markets and some are cash flowing markets and how the different economic dynamics of the states come into play and the housing prices uh, that are around there. Could you maybe delve some uh, light into it? And you also mentioned like some of the class that we take for granted, you know, like a class A or a class B or class C. So if you could help us maybe unpack some of those terms, that'd be great. Yeah, so the, the way I kind of explain to my guys is, you know, you're looking, there's kind of two markets out there. There's primary markets, which are places like Hawaii, San Francisco. I mean, in fact, probably the whole state of California is a primary sure. market. Mm-hmm. Um, New York, Boston, you know, where you're at, Maryland, that's that's a big primary market. You're sure. just not going to find the rent-to-value ratios necessary to be able to cash flow. Absolutely. It, you know, like that, that property in Seattle was 2200 a month divided by 350,000, that was well, that was like 0.6% rent to value ratio. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, here where I live now in Honolulu, Hawaii, it's worse. Like you're talking less than half a percent. Absolutely. So Absolutely. we're targeting markets that we call secondary and tertiary markets. Some people call these second tier and third tier markets. Sure. Um, others might just call them, you know, just not the sexy, cool places to live. Sure. Right? sure places sure. like Birmingham, Atlanta, Indianapolis, Kansas City, Little Rock. Jacksonville, Florida. Sure. Right. Big cities, larger than a hundred thousand hundred thousand population, but you know, not not the kind of the cool place I'd like to hang live. out. Yeah, unless right, you're right. from there, and that's right, fine. right, right. And, and and I guess you know the way I describe also to add to your is you're absolutely right, and sometimes I kind of tell people is that, hey, there are, you know, the the sexy neighborhoods or then some are the safe, sound, you know, cash-flowing, income-producing properties that you can drive easily, live safely, and still, you know, the housing prices are modest enough that the rental income, you know, can cover your PITI, like, you know, principal interest and taxes and things like that. And still you come out, uh, you know, ahead, like, you know, you can save some positive cash flow. And I love the, uh, you know, the website that you have, Simple Positive Cashflow, that that says a lot about your philosophy of investing and how you approach these different things. So there's definitely truth to be that. Uh, Now, help us understand, Len, that how a busy professional, you know, can kind of start to unpack this jargon of investments, like how they can kind of, you know, enter into passive investments and invest their uh, hard-earned cash. Uh, could you help us understand some of those dynamics? Yeah, I mean, part of it is like, I, I go by like the 70-20-10 rule. Um, mm-hmm. You know, in corporate America, a lot of HR departments use this framework. 
So 10% is like the academic stuff. So like podcasts, books, um, you know, 10% is nothing, right? But I think sure. most times people are kind of swimming in sh shelf help books and mm -hmm. podcasts. You know, sometimes people like listen to like two years of podcasts and they like, they can talk more than I can. And I'm like, dude, how much properties do you own? Correct, oh, I haven't bought it yet, right? Um, <laughs> I know, I know. The 20%, yep. right? The 20% is, you know, how much people, you know, you have in your network. Because, you know, when you're starting out, you don't know, you don't know too much. You might be book smart, but, you know, one, one, another rule I have is you don't, you don't buy anything until you have at least one or two people that is in your personal database that you, you can kind of call a friend that calibrates you. Right, sure. because you can you can know about primary markets, secondary markets, A, B, C markets, um, classes, neighborhoods. But if you've never done it before, you're likely to be a little bit off, sure, or maybe a very off. So having those people in your corner is critical. And then the seventy percent of it is just doing it, and that's why I suggest most people starting out. You know, unless you're an accredited investor and above, just just buy a single family home. I mean, there's so much in the learning process. Absolutely. To go through. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think you, you said it right, where I think there's a, so much to learn from your experiences and easy entry into single family is perhaps some of the simple things that you can do, you know, understand, you know, like what it takes to renovate, how to handle the tenants, then obviously there is the accounting side of things. I mean, that's for starters, you know. And if you throw in the mix of, as you alluded to uh, before, is that if you're buying properties in different states, how are you, you know, managing these things remotely? The importance of property managers uh, really come into my mind is that they are the key and they are the sort of the quarterback of your portfolio, so to speak, right? And have you had any experiences about how you remotely managed your properties and, you know, dealing with property managers and things like that? Yeah, so I when I first started out, I was doing single family homes. I had you know three big areas: Birmingham, Atlanta, and Indianapolis. And I had three different property managers in mm -hmm. those areas. Um, I normally like to you know it, it. You always have like the bigger companies; they'll manage a hundred thousand plus units. I usually like to go to a little bit more of the boutique um, companies where mm -hmm. I work with the actual owner and principal of the company, and they actually know my property intimately. Sure. Um, mm -hmm. They, you know, they, they drive it several times a year. Mm -hmm. um, that was just my style. Mm -hmm. um, and I found that pricing was a little bit better with those, those guys in terms of repairs, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but you know, it, it's no different than, you know, a lot of the guys I work with, just clients like our high paid professionals, you know, you know, doctors, lawyers, engineers. I mean, the doctors and dentists are, you know, they don't really typically do this. They have staff on premises, but you know, for a lot of guys like IT or, you know, any, any kind of business these days, it's all remotely. I mean, when I was yeah. working, I, I saw my boss maybe, I don't know, once a, a couple of times a year for my, my semi-annual review, right? <laughs> um, and then, right. you know, a lot of my staff, you know, it's, it's rare that you see them every single day. Right, right, right. So it, it's no different than a lot of the corporate America practices that you have to employ that of, you know, keeping them accountable giving them enough leash to make their own decisions say, well, what, what's okay. So this is broken. What's your game plan? You know, you tell me, all right, what's mm -hmm. the, now how, you define how you address it. Right. How do right. You now, it? now you, now you define the scope of it now. And, but you tell me what the schedule is that sure. 
Mm -hmm. And you better, you better tell me something right because I'm going to keep you accountable to that to mm -hmm. T and I'm going to measure up your milestones to get there in case right. you fall behind. Right. right. That's so, important. And I think with that, I think you get to evaluate, you know, how their systems are, how the people are, and are they staying on top of things and getting things done? Would that, would that be right? Right. Right. But you know, I think what I see in most new investors is they think that they can just give it to a property manager and that's it. It's like a lot, like mm -hmm. a lot of my clients, like I send them to some of my CPA referrals and they just like, all right, done. I'm like, um, no, you're the owner. You are <laughs> the boss. You, you run the ship here. Sure. These people are just people on your staff. But you know, if I remember from my corporate America days, I mean, I'm guilty of this too. I'm always trying to do the least amount of work for the same amount of pay, right? So, the, right. you know, the, in this case, this is your financial future. You are the owner of this. You need to tell your CPA what to do. You need to tell your property manager exactly what you want. You need to mm -hmm. be reasonable. Right, right. Because right. they could fire you too. <laughs> but, <laughs> Absolutely. Um, you know, a lot of people, they just don't have these skill sets, right? And sure, maybe, sure. maybe this, you know, this is not for everybody. Mm -hmm. but it's not that hard to. Right, right. And how do you uh, like sort of if, if a normal person is to, you know, listen to this and kind of uh, try to understand like what is a class A property or a class B property or a class C property? Could you help us understand what they mean and how that, how can a person, you know, evaluate them if they have to, you know, kind of look into those details? Yeah, so you can separate the grades by neighborhood class and building class. So we'll start with the building class first. So normally the best way of determining it is just on the, the year that the property was built. So sure. your properties mm -hmm. older than the 1970s will typically be class C. 1970s to 1985-ish will be a B class. And anything new will be an A class. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's just, you know, just on property building type. On construction, sure. but mm -hmm. you can have a C-class building that's built in the 1960s in a B-class or A-class neighborhood. So mm -hmm. quickly going over those neighborhoods, A-class are more your luxury, yuppie type of towns. Sure. Um, mm -hmm. Class B are more your blue collar, white collar mix, and then your class C will be, um, you know, mostly blue collar folks. Right. Which right. is hard because most most people that doesn't really um, resonate too much so the simple passive cash flow way is like look the a-class stuff is like where you know people are running around at nighttime you know it's a cool place to live it's really safe the class sure. b stuff is you know i probably wouldn't want to be out there at night right you know, mm -hmm. it, 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 but it's fine for a couple dudes to go walk around during the daytime sure. class c when i go check out my class c apartments and houses i mean and I got to take pictures or do whatever I get in and I get out during the daytime. Mm -hmm. And you wouldn't, you wouldn't find me caught dead at night anytime after the sun goes down. <laughs> and of course there's DNF, which are the war zone properties, which oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. and yeah, you usually got to pack heat if you want to go collect your rent on those. <laughs> right, 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 right. And there are some rules of investing about how you go by these things, uh, Lane, like, uh, you know, what you look for and stuff like that. Could you help our viewers understand uh, what exactly is some of the rules you go by into investing, you know? Yeah, so I'm a numbers guys first, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I don't look at anything unless it satisfies like at least a 1% rent to value ratio. And the mm -hmm. reason why is I, I kind of target cash flow first. 
because right. when I was still working my day job, my whole goal was to quit my day job and I needed passive income to do right. that. And mm-hmm. if the rents succeed, the, all the repairs, all the expenses, then that's cash in my pocket and I can put food on the table. Right. So, mm-hmm. you know, I've, I've quit my job since then and I don't, I don't technically need that much cash flow these days, but mm-hmm. still the fundamental for me, that, that's my buy box. It, it needs to be able to cash flow day one. Right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And how do you like kind of evaluate, you know, what repairs need to be done or how you can increase the rent by adding some value to it and things like that. How do you kind of go about some of those aspects of deals? Yeah. I mean, I'm no like construction or I'm, I haven't been in the trades. I haven't built houses. Right. But I rely mm-hmm. on more commercial um, vendors such as sure. property inspectors and property managers mm-hmm. to build me a, a hit list. Um, mm-hmm. Once they get it on a spreadsheet, I can go to town, right? I mean, we're both industrial engineers. We, we know how to do that. That's sure. our jam. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's just a bunch of numbers at that point. You know, cost estimates, you know, aim high, but you have it accounted for. And right. try and find all the deferred maintenance items. I mean, mm-hmm. there will be unforeseen conditions, but you try to uncover as much as that as possible. And sure, cover that sure. within contingency. Sure, sure. And now speaking of the multifamily assets, right? So a lot of these multifamily assets are, you know, kind of done in a syndication uh, world, right? So where, you know, you're collecting uh, passive investors uh, capital, pooling the funds together and going out and buying, you know, larger assets, whether it's, let's say, 60 units, 100 units, you know, 300 units and things like that. Uh, could you help us uh, unpack, uh, Lane, as to how do you go about analyzing these syndications or how do you wait an operator and things like that? So like if a normal person is listening to it, right, and an investment offering is presented it to them, they wouldn't have a clue as to where to look for or, you know, how, how, do, how can they, you know, understand these things. Could you help us understand how, how do you kind of go about uh, vetting the syndications uh, uh, in these deals? Yeah, so I'll, I'll do it how basically I do it. I mean, 50% is the person. I don't work with anybody I don't know, like, or trust. Mm-hmm. And, sure. you know, talking to the syndicator to me does does me no good. It's just the way I see it. It's kind of a waste of time. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can talk about syndication in my sleep and give all the right answers. Sure. And I'm assuming <laughs> everybody else can. Right. It's not that hard. Um, I will only invest with somebody unless somebody in my personal network that I trust that I have an organic relationship can corroborate the sponsor's previous experience mm-hmm. and have actually invested with them. Cause what you'll find is a lot of people that they'll say so-and-so is good, but they haven't even invested a dime. Right. You know? right. It makes no sense to me, but right. that happens a lot. It happens a lot. Um, the other half is the numbers, right? Like I, sure. I'll take the rent rolls and P&Ls. I'll put it into my analyzer. And what I'm doing is I'm spot checking what the assumptions are, such as the reversion cap rate, the rent increases per year, and the full uh, economic occupancy that's being assumed. Mm-hmm. And from there, I'm just trying to make sure, I'm just trying to backwards engineer what's, what's going on here. And is the sponsor getting aggressive on their assumptions? Right. And are they are we getting to the same number at the bottom of the page? Is it truly a double your money in five years mm-hmm. deal? Are they, are they tr- are you truly getting that cash flow where they said they were going to be? You can find a lot of character by doing that. Sure, sure, um, sure. But you know, you mentioned like what is the normal investor going to do? Well, they number one, they don't have the P and Ls and rent rolls. 
90% of LPs cannot do that analysis. Sure. So for them, I would, I would recommend just building up your database of other passive investors. Sure. Unfortunately, these guys are not at the local RIA or they're not on some free internet forum site. Right. right, right. There, these are all have, busy professionals. Absolutely. Right. Right. You go to those places, you're just going to find some broke guys trying to get rich quick. Right. 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 Very, very well said. Very well said. And the part is also that to highlight is that, you know, what assumptions are made? Like, are you like being overly aggressive that, oh, you're just projecting, you know, something really sky high that's not going to get delivered. Like, for example, we are right in the midst of a uh, COVID pandemic right now, you know, so if someone is, let's say, assuming, you know, 5%, 7% type of rent growth, that would be considered extremely aggressive right now. You know, a conservative estimate right now would be a very minimum, perhaps a flat zero or like really 1% uh, annual rent growth for next uh, year or so, you know, would that be correct, Elaine? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, the whole COVID-19 thing, I think it's it's a true black swan event. I mean, I know a lot of passive investors talk about it but to me as a more long-term investor um i mean the way i would underwrite it is that i would just do it like a two percent rent increase but that would be for a good market but if you have like a you know weaker market like a i don't know like a jackson mississippi right mm -hmm. right like i would probably underwrite it like one and a half one percent rent increases per right year. right minimal the best basically Got yeah. it, got it. Yeah, but you know, a lot of, like you said, you know, any, when you're getting above 3% a year, you're kind of pushing it. And that's just one lever that, you know, exactly. the can kind of pull. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, there is a whole host of other issues as far as, you know, how much the payroll is, how the utilities are, you got your contract services and all that. So there's a lot of levers that you still have to consider. You're, you're absolutely right. Uh, so now, Elaine, um, someone like you who have been, let's say, into single family uh, before you scaled your business to now you're controlling, let's say, 35, 100 doors in many states now. Uh, could you maybe help uh, our listeners understand how you scaled your business? How, uh, you know, what are some of the, uh, you know, uh, highlights that you can uh, share with us that uh, how can someone scale the business to that level the way you have? Yeah, so my, I mean, it's not really practical advice, but the only reason I was able to scale it that much is I had this silly podcast that people like to listen to that I started back in 2016. Interesting. You know, like, it's like, because the reason I say that is because, you know, I was living in Seattle and, you know, I had, I had coaching to go and do my own multifamily deals, but like the vast majority, I would say 90% or more people fail and flunk out and never get their first deal. Right. Um, and I was one of those people. The, the reason being is if you really want a good deal, not another garbage 99% deal out there, you know, you really have to actually go visit these properties and build rapport and relationships with the brokers. With the brokers, absolutely. absolutely. And I just didn't like to do that. And um, it was just impractical for me to go hop on a plane from Seattle, go down to Texas or wherever you're absolutely right there are you know sort of your work professional life constraints and the physical constraints i mean you know given that you were in seattle you were pretty much on the west north uh, north corner uh, there you know and it's it's almost difficult to do that right uh, so 
let's say your podcast was one. Was there any other elements uh, that you added, uh, perhaps that uh, helped you grow? Well, I mean, as I, as I was saying, like I just did the simple math calculation in my head, where you know I took my net worth and I was like, all right, assuming that these deals they pay me twelve percent, thirteen percent IR. I mean, mm -hmm. a lot of them are underwritten to be more like fifteen percent. Ish. Sure, sure. But I just wanted to be conservative because at the time I had built up a pretty good network of other passive investors, and you know, to a point where I had several guys that I could call on and and that were in twenty something plus deals. And I was like, "Hey, man, like, how do these things actually really work? Is it all what they say it's going to be?" Mm -hmm. And so that was where I kind of backwards engineered into that mm -hmm. that twelve to thirteen percent number. Interesting. So I, I just went just built a spreadsheet and I was like, all right, this is how much money I have. This is how much money I can invest every year. And this is, you know, if it grows at a 13% IR, where is my, um, my numbers going to be by the time I'm 35, 40, 45. Sure. And sure. my goal was to, I wanted to quit my day job as, as quickly as possible. It's safely too. Right, right. So I realized that I could do that well before I was 40 years old. Mm -hmm. And that was why I was like, screw it. Why would I want to be a, a general partner, put up all this hard money, do, take on all this risk? So I originally went down the path of being a passive investor. Just, you know, I, I knew how to analyze deals. So I was probably better than most in terms of picking, picking the right horses mm -hmm. is what I figure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's what I sought out to do first. And that was my, my first kind of foray into syndications and private placements. Interesting, interesting. So now uh, the 3,500 units uh, that you control, these are all passive investments, uh, Elaine, or do you have any uh, general partnership stake or do you, uh, are you maybe a, a strong proponent of investing passively all the time? Uh, just trying to understand. Yeah, so then the story changed, right? Um, so people from my community wanted to just kind of copy what I did sort okay. of just will watch. I don't know why they trust me. Some guy just talking through a microphone on the internet, but they did. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, people started to join me in deals and um, to protect them, I went into the general partnership to, um, you know, get control as, you know, kind of fiduciary responsibility to kind of protect their best interests. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, kind of here we are today basically. That's awesome. That's awesome. And um, just for our listeners, um, Lane has Huey Deal Pipeline Club, which uh, perhaps is uh, the, his network where I think passive investors are, uh, you know, investing and plus doing deals uh, within uh, his ecosystem. Uh, you want to share more details about your uh, club, uh, Lane? Yeah, well, I mean, we're, we're a relationship-based organization. Um, you know, I mean, I don't really need to do this for money, but I, and I certainly don't want to work with, you know, difficult people. I want to work sure. with people that are kind of seeing the world from my um, vantage point and, you know, understand that, you know, a lot of these deals, you can lose your money, right? But sure, sure. understand that, um, you know, we're trying our best and acting in the best fiduciary stance we can, right? And, and being good stewards of their money. Absolutely. So that's kind of where it comes from. Um, you know, we, we, we do, you know, we do put emphasis on vetting our clients and, um, you know, just kind of, I, I, 
I think it's just a lot of people they just frankly like it that I'm putting my own money into deals. And right. if they lose, if I lose money, you know, they lose money, and you know, at least it's a big pity party together. That comes down to that. <laughs> right, right, right. Awesome. Uh, so, Lane, um, knowing your background now and you have a lot of experience, you know, uh, share with us some of the best advice that you have received so far from uh, whether it was, you know, any senior investors or fellow investors uh, so far. Uh, help us understand some of the good advice that you have gotten so far from, uh, you know, others. Yeah, I mean, one one big thing that I tell a lot of my investors is always, you know, you know, being a passive investor in a syndication, you get diversification, different deals, different asset classes, right? Like, I mean, I invest in mobile home parks, not only multifamily, um, hmm. maybe even life settlements one day, um, oil and gas deals. Um, you can syndicate mm -hmm. everything. Sure. And, and, mm -hmm. You know, sophisticated investors, you know, you, you got to start out with something you know, but, you know, you got to branch out to different asset classes and get diversification. Otherwise, sure. like we, we never know if America is going to start to build class B and C government subsidized housing on a large scale, like how they do in China or, or other Asian markets. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, another thing is, you know, kind of going in with that smaller amount, like that $50,000 investments, great way to spread a million dollars all over the place. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then I think, I think lastly, um, you know, your network is your net worth. The only way to find, passive deals is to build up your network of other passive investors that you can call friends. Absolutely. And it's more fun that way too. So absolutely. And goes back to what you said earlier about the 10, 10, 20, 70 rule that, you know, 10% is your education. 20% is, uh, you know, all your people, your network and, you know, friends you can trust on. And of course, 70% is your action and, you know, you're vetting the deals and things like that. So it's been awesome. So uh, thank you, Lane. Uh, one last question, like uh, what are some of the things you're doing nowadays to improve your business, whether it's a tool or a practice or any personal uh, things you want to share? Um, I think just kind of connecting with people on a personal level these days. Um, sure. I think with this whole COVID-19 thing happening, um, you know, people are kind of stuck with their immediate family units. And, you know, I think we've kind of lost touch and just picking up the damn phone and having <laughs> a conversation, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Very, very wise advice, uh, you know, keeps you connected with a lot more people, see what's happening and things like that. Uh, and, you know, keeps your mental state aware also, because I think uh, being inside closed, shut down, <laughs> obviously, you know, there are mental challenges as well, so that come with it. So thank you. I appreciate your time, Lane, today. Uh, it's, it's been a pleasure. Uh, our listeners can go on to premiumcashflow.com as well. And, you know, uh, there's a clear link for invest with us where they can, uh, you know, uh, uh, register themselves. And we regularly have deals where we, you, you know, we are also connecting with investors and uh, we are happy to, you know, jump on a phone call, have a brief discussion about, you know, what your investment goals are, if you're sophisticated, accredited and things like that. So all the investments we do are done with proper disclosure and, uh, documentation uh, via SEC. So it's been a pleasure, Lane. I look forward to connecting with you uh, as you grow more of your business. Uh, I'm sure we, we will be back in touch again. And uh, thank you for your time today. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, everybody. Aloha.
Thanks for listening to Premium Cashflow Real Estate Investing Podcast. Please join us at premiumcashflow.com to sign up for weekly updates, research articles, and more. We will see you again for another great interview with an expert guest.